I know that Muhammad was my age when he was brought to Guantanamo. I know that the U.S. openly admitted to torturing Muhammad and that Muhammad's indefinite incarceration without trial or sentence is a form of psychological torture. The U.S. opened the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center four months after the attacks of 9-11-2001. Since then, close to 800 men have been held there as part of the so-called War on Terror. Forty are still there, and one of them is Mohammed Al-Qahtani. Dana Jabri and Shaza Abushi Dalal are the latest in a long line of student attorneys helping with Mohammed's legal representation. We're now close to Muhammad's age when he arrived at the prison, and that's now more than half his lifetime ago. And we're learning to be social justice attorneys by working on Muhammad's case. This week, Muhammad's case could be the first to test U.S. President Joe Biden's resolve to close Guantanamo. Here's what Biden had to say about the prison while still on the campaign trail. We, in fact, think it's the greatest. It is an advertisement for, for creating terror. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So what is there to learn from Muhammad's case? Ramzi Qasim would know. He's Shaza and Dana's professor at CLEAR, the Organization for Creating Law Enforcement Accountability and Responsibility at the City University of New York. And he's been working with what he describes as generations of student attorneys now. Ramzi, how long have you been working on this case? I personally joined his defense team in 2010. He began sending requests for me to join his defense team for the clinic to take on his case, starting in 2008, 2009, through other clients of ours at Guantanamo. And the clinic's been working on it since then. And so there's multi-generational experience and exposure to these cases in our clinic. When he says clinic, he's referring to the students and lawyers who have taken on cases like Mohammed's, including Dana and Shaza. And we'll hear from them about what it's like just communicating with a detainee at Guantanamo Bay. But first, a little background on Mohammed's case. According to the U.S. government, Mohammed was spotted by immigration officials at the Orlando airport on September 11, 2001. What the government has said is, and what's been used in the media at times, is the phrase 20th hijacker. You may have heard that phrase before. Since the start of the so-called global war on terror 20 years ago in 2001, the U.S. government has used that label, 20th hijacker, with respect to different men. And so when it comes to Mohammed Al-Qahtani, the government has proven none of its allegations. And in fact, the only charges that the U.S. government has ever brought were thrown out by a senior Defense Department official who had been appointed by President George W. Bush. So right now, Mohammed is at Guantanamo with no charges against him. Before Ramzi began representing Mohammed, Susan Crawford, the head of the military commission at Guantanamo Bay, threw out the charges against him. Susan Crawford admitted that the U.S. government tortured Mohammed al-Qahtani, and, and that's why she threw out the case against him for that reason. And no other charges have been brought since. Mohammed is the only individual in the entire U.S. global war on terror that the U.S. government has officially admitted torturing. Officially. And that's a big deal, not just for Mohammed and his case, but for all the Guantanamo Bay cases. Obviously, the torture issues are grave and frankly sufficient on their own to 
weren't throwing out any case and setting a person free, because that's a crime. Torture is a crime under international law. It's a crime under U.S. law. And so you have this crime. You have victims. There are people like Mohammed Al-Qahtani who are at Guantanamo, but somehow, magically, there are no culprits. No one has been brought to account. And Guantanamo is still open. After George Bush's presidency ended, President Barack Obama came into office with Biden as his vice president, promising to close Guantanamo, but they couldn't get it done. Then President Donald Trump came to office vowing to keep it open. And now President Biden says he's launched a formal review to try and close the prison again, at least by the time his presidency ends. This is White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki in February. That certainly is our goal and our intention. And we are three weeks in. I realize at a certain point I can't say that anymore, but we are still just three and a half weeks in. Rumsey says it should be easy enough to get that done. It's honestly easier than it's ever been to close Guantanamo. You only have 40 prisoners left there. The majority of these men should be released by being repatriated to their home countries if it's safe or resettled as refugees in third countries. Our clients have ended up sent home to places like Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Algeria. But we've also had clients who were resettled as refugees in the United Kingdom, in Senegal, and Uruguay. And so for the remaining men, if the U.S. government has charges that could stand up in a free and fair and transparent court, then these men should be given fair trials in a civilian court, not a military commission. Those trials should be open to the public. The evidence should be visible to the accused themselves. And so that's really the solution. There's 40 men left. Release them or give them a fair trial and close down the prison. And in Mohammed's case, it's not just that he's at Guantanamo without charges or even that he's been tortured. In the course of representing Mohammed, Ramzi and his team started gathering information on their client, now a 45-year-old Saudi national. Yes, we were able to obtain, through our own efforts, these were not records that were handed to us by the U.S. government, but through our own investigative efforts, we were able to obtain medical and psychiatric records from a Saudi hospital in Mecca, dating back to an acute psychotic break that he had in 2000. So long before any of the U.S. government's allegations happened, long before he was taken into custody by the United States. And more than a year before September 11, 2001. We were able to get a federal court to appoint a psychiatrist, the first psychiatrist independent of the U.S. government, to have examined Hamad and Guantanamo and to have reviewed the Saudi medical records, And she concluded that Hamad, long before he was brought to Guantanamo, suffered from a number of very serious pre-existing mental health conditions. Going back to his childhood as a result of a car accident where he sustained a head injury, including traumatic brain injury that possibly caused neurocognitive disorder, severe schizophrenia, recurrent major depression. His mental health started deteriorating in his late childhood, early teens, and it steadily got worse. He was found naked by the Riyadh police in a garbage dumpster, and they brought him home. He hurled himself into moving traffic, uh, was arrested, was sedated, was involuntarily committed because he was suicidal. This was the man that the U.S. government then took into its custody. This was the man they forcibly transferred to Guantanamo 
as one of the so-called worst of the worst. And this was the man that U.S. government then very deliberately tortured in a program of torture that was designed for him, applied to a man that the U.S. government must have known was a sick man. The torture made those conditions worse. In 2005, an 84-page interrogation log was leaked to Time magazine. It detailed what happened to Mohammed at Guantanamo from November 2002 to January 2003. What do we know of what methods were used against Al-Qahtani? Everything that he's described has been corroborated and confirmed by U.S. government records that have been made public. Mohammed was beaten, he was strangled, he was subjected to simulated drownings, he was subjected to sexual assaults and humiliation, including nudity, unnecessary body cavity searches, exposure to extreme temperatures and noise, sleep deprivation, extended solitary confinement, what's been called sensory deprivation, which has to do with light and sounds and and music being played very loud or being blindfolded or deprived of relying on your own senses for prolonged periods of time. He was injected with saline solution so that he would have to urinate and then he was not allowed to use a latrine or a bathroom, was forced to urinate on himself, he was forced to defecate on himself which also, of course, as a practicing Muslim, had the additional effect of preventing him from being in a state when he could pray. He was short-shackled and kept in stress positions, not to mention death threats, threats to the safety and bodily integrity of his female and male relatives, threats of being rendered to places like Egypt or Israel where he would be tortured, and the list goes on and on. Every detail that I've shared with you is confirmed now by public source reporting by U.S. government records as well. What is the goal now? The best possible outcome for everyone involved, really, is for him to be repatriated. That would be good for the United States in the sense that it would take the Biden administration one step closer to fulfilling its promise of closing Guantanamo. It would be good for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia would get its national back from Guantanamo. He would be in a psychiatric care facility He would be close to his family. And it would be good for him, for Muhammad, because he would get the care that he needs and he would finally be able to see his family again. About a year ago, because of the work Ramzi and his team had done, Muhammad was closer than he'd ever been to going home. We were able to get an unprecedented court order forcing the federal government to allow Muhammad's examination by a mixed medical commission, which is a team of independent doctors, outside doctors. And under the court's order from March 2020, this team is supposed to go to Guantanamo, examine Muhammad, and if they reach the same conclusions as the independent expert that we got in there, then he's entitled to repatriation to Saudi Arabia on medical grounds. But at the last minute, before then-President Trump left office, a Defense Department official issued an exception. This so-called exception to say, okay, well, this law no longer applies to Guantanamo because we lost in court. They did that on January 11th, by the way, which was the 19th anniversary of the opening of the prison. And now, the Biden administration is supposed to make a big decision on that by the end of this week. And so now that's what the team is working on. And we're waiting to see if the Biden administration undoes what the Trump administration did on its way out. Ramzi, you've been working on this for so long. Why is this important to you? Why do you do what you do? I I do it for the clients. I get to go to Guantanamo. 
I haven't been in a year because of the pandemic, but I've, I've seen Muhammad before. And so I've been able to see, you know, the ways in which he manages to, you know, find the ability to trust me, even though it took a very long time, find the ability to even joke at times and laugh, you know, in his moments of lucidity. And so I see that and, and that, that sustains me, it inspires me, it, it enables me to carry on with the work. And since that day in September, 20-some years ago, this has been the work that Dramzi has wanted to do. You know, I'm Syrian. I was born in Beirut. I grew up mostly in the Middle East. I came to the United States for college, and I was a second-year law student starting my second year when 9-11 happened, and I was in New York City. I've been here mostly since then. And so for me, it was you had to basically almost pick a camp. You had to decide what you were going to do, whether you were going to sort of keep your head down and stay away from anything political, or whether you were going to wrap yourself in the flag and join the military to sort of declare your belonging and your patriotism, or whether you were going to try to find ways to push back. After we had done what every New Yorker had done, which was make sure that like your friends and your loved ones and everyone was physically okay, we had to start fighting for our own you know, well-being and our own integrity in, in this country. Within two weeks of 9-11, I was visiting detention facilities with lawyers as a volunteer, as an intern, interviewing prisoners. You know, well over a thousand men in New York City alone, Muslim men who were immigrants who were rounded up, thrown into prison for really no other reason than the fact that they were Muslim and undocumented. That summer, I began doing research related to the Guantanamo cases, that was like months after Guantanamo was opened in 2002. And he's been successful with the work he's done with CLEAR. We've represented, you know, 15 men who've been incarcerated at Guantanamo, at Bagram, and at U.S. black sites that have been released. They're, they're back with their families. Uh, and, and hopefully we can do the same sooner or later for, for Muhammad. And it's not just Ramzi. Every year, he teaches a new group of student lawyers about justice in the United States by having them work on the Guantanamo cases, like Dana and Shaza, who you heard earlier. They're both in their last year of law school at CUNY. Shaza and I are of the very few Arab women who had the chance to represent a Guantanamo detainee. Getting more attorneys of color to help clients of color is part of CLEAR's mission, and it's one of Ramzi's goals. Shaza is Palestinian-Lebanese-American. I lived in the United States. I went to one of the closest public schools to the Twin Towers. I was a resident of Lower Manhattan and the six-year-old child of two Arab Americans when 9-11 happened. And so the events of that day and all that ensued, including Guantanamo, were formative. That will always be one of the most important reasons why I do this work for my larger community and particularly those of us who have borne the greatest brunt of the government's abuses in the name of so-called counterterrorism and national security policies. And working towards Muhammad's liberation and Guantanamo's closure, I think flows naturally both out of who I am and who I want my degree to serve. Dana's story hit close to home. You may not know much about the town of Bridgeview, Illinois, where she went to school, but I know it well. I went to school there, too, and it's a vibrant community of Muslim Americans with a reputation for being vocal about the various forms of bigotry and injustice facing its community members. 
Dana, you and I come from the same community on the south side of Chicago. So I imagine that probably played a bit of a part in the person you've become. Yeah, absolutely. From a really young age, I remember instead of, for example, going to an after-school activity, my mom would be like, okay, guys, we're hitting the highway. <laughs> like, wait, where are we going? It's a school day. She would be like, yeah, there's a protest going on. During the Libyan revolution, post-2010, and for the Syrian revolution thereafter. But Dana's parents weren't always active protesters. In fact, their lives started out very differently. Well, my parents grew up in the Ba'ath regime's state in Syria, and that was my parents' journey fleeing that regime to the United States in the 80s. It's one that taught me, as someone being born in the United States, to take advantage of the freedoms that they didn't experience and couldn't express for the majority of their lives up until they've moved to the United States. And I think it was this awareness of what an oppressive state is and forms of oppression to harm people that really brought me to this work. What kind of work have you all been doing as student attorneys in this case? The work that we do really looks like all the work that would go into a typical litigation meetings, research, memo writing, advocacy. You've been working on this case since September, right? That's correct. So, of course, that's during the pandemic. What were those meetings like? The people detained at Guantanamo are immensely isolated to start off with by virtue of the policies and practices that the government implements in the prison. So, Practically speaking, what that means is that Dana and I have only been able to speak through letters. Are you physically writing them, typing them up, emails? We're writing letters. It's it's not email. And, and it goes through a very extensive procedure. Again, like these are pre-pandemic procedures that the government has in place that really limit the communication that one can have with folks on the inside of this prison. They both wrote an op-ed for our website, aljazeera.com, on Muhammad's case, laying out why he should be released and Guantanamo Bay should be closed. Shada and Dana, both of you just have a few more months. What's next for you and what do you think you'll take away from this case? So we're graduating in May, the both of us, and I'll be starting my career as an appellate public defender here in New York City after I take the New York bar exam. And for me, post-graduation, I hope to start my career either in Chicago or elsewhere by continuing to defend people whose rights have been stripped from them, whether that be in federal or immigration court. Any advice for the next student attorneys working on Guantanamo? Hopefully, we would not have to pass on this case to a next team. The Biden administration can release Muhammad tomorrow, if they so choose, and make good on the unfulfilled promise of the previous Obama-Biden administration and close Guantanamo. In the case that Muhammad unjustly remains in detention, it's not only Arabs and Muslims who should care and work for the liberation of Muhammad al-Qahtani and the other detainees. We need others. I asked Ramzi if he thinks Shaza and Dana's dream of being the last student attorneys learning American justice from Guantanamo could come true. Do you think it's possible that the Biden administration will be the one to close Guantanamo? I mean, absolutely, I think it's possible. The question has never been one of possibility. It's always been a question of political will. There's 40 men left. 
release them or give them a fair trial and, and close down the prison. The only question is whether there's the political will to do that, and we'll find out whether the Biden administration is serious when it said it wants to deliver on that promise of closing Guantanamo. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilvey, Nagin Oliay, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Natalia Adana is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. As always, we want to hear from you. Reach out on Twitter or Instagram at AJTheTake. We'll be back on Friday.